The House and Senate will both return tomorrow and stay in session through Friday. Two weeks ago in the House, the House returned to work on Tuesday, September 12th, and immediately took up and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, September 13th, the House took up two more bills under suspension. On Thursday, September 14th, the House took up and passed a rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 1435, the Preserving Choice in Vehicle Purchases Act, which would block the implementation of a Clean Air Act mandate that prohibits the sale of automobiles with internal combustion engines. Then the House took up and passed the bill by a vote of 222 to 190, and then they were done for the week. The House came back on Monday, September 18, and took up and passed three bills under suspension of the rules. On Tuesday, the House dealt with some procedural matters, then took up the rule governing floor consideration of H.R. 4365. That's the FY 2024 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. And the world came to a crashing halt as a rule failed for only the second time in more than 20 years. By a vote of 212 to 214, with five Republicans voting with the Democrats to defeat the rule, the resolution failed. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Wednesday, the House defeated a Democrat motion to instruct conferees on H.R. 2670, the National Defense Authorization Act. Then the House took up and passed a bill under suspension of the rules. On Thursday, the House tried again to bring up the FY 2024 Department of Defense Appropriations Act. After successfully voting to order the previous question, thus ending debate, the House took up the rule governing floor consideration of the DOD approps bill. And again, to most people's surprise, and especially Speaker Kevin McCarthy's surprise, the vote on the rule failed by a margin of 212 to 216. It was actually closer than that. The vote was 213 to 215, but Rules Committee Chairman Tom Cole, who had initially voted yes, switched his vote to no before the voting period closed so that he could later bring up the measure again under a motion to reconsider. And then they were done. This week in the House, the House will return to work Tuesday with the first vote set for 6.30 p.m. At that time, the House is scheduled to take up two bills under suspension of the rules. Also likely on Tuesday, the House will take up a rule governing floor consideration of four different appropriations bills. H.R. 4365, the Department of Defense Appropriations Act. H.R. 4367, the Department of Homeland Security Appropriations Act. H.R. 4665, the State Foreign Operations Appropriations Act and H.R. 4368, the Agriculture Appropriations Act. Then, if all goes as planned, the House will move on and pass the four appropriations bills. And if they all pass, the House will move on to consider the remaining seven appropriations bills in hopes they can all be passed and sent to the Senate in as expeditious a manner as possible. Two weeks ago in the Senate, the Senate returned on Monday, September 11, and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Tanya Bradshaw to be Deputy Secretary of Veterans Affairs. On Tuesday, September 12, the Senate voted to confirm her to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Jeffrey Irvine Cummings to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of Illinois. Then the Senate voted to agree to a motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 4366, the Military Construction Veterans Affairs Appropriations Bill. 
On Thursday, September 14, the Senate voted to agree to the motion to proceed to H.R. 4366, the Milcon VA Approps Bill, and then they were done for the week. The Senate came back on Monday, September 18, and voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of Vernon D. Oliver to be U.S. District Judge for the District of Connecticut. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Rita F. Lynn to be U.S. District Judge for the Northern District of California. On Wednesday, the Senate tried to get around Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville's months-long blockade of military promotions by changing the rules of the Senate. The motion to invoke cloture on a motion to suspend the rules failed by a vote of 49 to 48, with all the Republicans who voted voting against it. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of General C.Q. Brown, President Biden's nominee to be chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the nomination of General Randy A. George to be Chief of Staff of the Army. On Thursday, the Senate voted to confirm him to that position. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of General Eric M. Smith to be Commandant of the Marine Corps and then they were done. This week in the Senate, the Senate will come back on Tuesday with the first vote set for 5.30 p.m. At that time, the Senate will proceed to a roll call vote on the motion to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 3935. That's the House-passed FAA reauthorization bill that will serve as the vehicle for the Senate version of a continuing resolution. Then, if all goes as planned, they will pass that continuing resolution on Thursday. We'll talk more about that in a moment. The New Mexico governor overreaches. On Friday, September 8, New Mexico's Democrat governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, violated the constitutional rights of just about everyone in her state when she issued an emergency order suspending the right to carry firearms in public in Albuquerque and the surrounding Bernalillo County, for at least 30 days. Within a matter of hours, the state's attorney general, a Democrat, announced he would not defend her actions against legal challenges. The police chief of Albuquerque announced he and his police officers would not enforce the ban. And five days after the governor issued the order, a federal district judge blocked the order from going into effect. Now, an update on aid to Ukraine. As Congress struggles to figure out its fiscal year-end game, one of the items under consideration is continuing aid to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia's invasion. One of the most potent arguments against continuing to dun U.S. taxpayers to pay for Ukraine's defense is that this is a European problem, so European countries should step up and pay for it. Why is it always the U.S. taxpayer that's asked to shoulder the burden? That's an effective argument except that it's based on a fallacy, to wit, the claim that European countries aren't doing nearly as much as the U.S. is. In fact, according to National Review's Jim Garotti, who just returned from a fact-finding mission to Ukraine, quote, updated numbers reveal that when you add up all the military, humanitarian, and financial aid sent to Ukraine, Europe collectively is sending $2.22 for every dollar the United States has sent dispelling the myth that America is getting stuck with the check for helping Ukraine. The estimated value of U.S. military aid remains significantly larger than that of European military aid. 
but European allies have compensated with more humanitarian and financial aid, as well as a willingness to house more refugees, end quote. Then, quoting a study from the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, using figures updated to July 31, Karate notes that, quote, when adding other Western European countries that are not part of the EU, that is, the United Kingdom, Norway, and Switzerland, the gap widens further, unquote. I want to give you some context for this. A Ukrainian member of parliament recently told CNN that the Ukrainian defense forces are firing 6,000 artillery rounds every day at Russian forces, but they want to shoot 10,000 rounds per day. Even that would be just a fraction of the 60,000 artillery shells Russia was firing at Ukraine every single day at the peak of its attack this year, according to an analysis from the Estonian and Ukrainian governments. All in all, Kyiv needs one and a half million artillery shells every year, according to the CEO of one of Europe's largest arms manufacturers. One and a half million artillery shells per year sounds like a ridiculous amount of artillery, doesn't it? It does. Until you consider that in the opening days of World War I, Russian artillery forces were going through one and a half million rounds every month. And by the end of the war, or by 1916, excuse me, Russia was going through three and a half million rounds of artillery shells every single month. That is, three and a half million rounds every single month. Merrick Garland was on the hot seat last week. On Wednesday, Attorney General Merrick Garland appeared before the House Judiciary Committee for an oversight hearing. True to form, he dodged the committee's questions, defended his employees at the Department of Justice, and said he and his DOJ employees would pursue justice without fear or favor. Asked by Louisiana Republican Congressman Mike Johnson if he had ever spoken to anyone at FBI headquarters about the Hunter Biden investigation, Garland responded, quote, I don't recollect the answer to that question, unquote, as if he had had a prepared answer that escaped him at the moment. Florida Republican Congressman Matt Gates and Kentucky Republican Congressman Thomas Massey grilled Garland about the Hunter Biden investigation. It was an altogether weak performance by the Attorney General. Now to the spending fight. At midnight, Saturday night, this coming Saturday, government funding expires. If the House and Senate don't pass and the President doesn't sign a bill funding the government beyond that time, before that time, then, at 12.01 a.m. Sunday morning, the government will shut down. To be more precise, part of the government will shut down on a temporary basis. The last time we had a significant government shutdown for 35 days from December of 2018 through January of 2019, roughly 83% of the federal government workforce still went to work every day during the shutdown. And they all got paid for their work when the temporary partial shutdown was over. So there's that. Now, if you fear the consequences of shutdown, and let's be clear, if there is a shutdown, the vast majority of the voting public will put the political blame on Republicans because they always blame the Republicans. The fact is the government eventually needs to be funded. To do that, the Congress must pass and the president must sign legislation appropriating funds for each of the various government departments and agencies. 
So far, neither the House nor the Senate has done a very good job in advancing those funding bills in this year's round of the appropriations exercise. The House has passed one of the 12 bills needed to fund the federal government on an annual basis. The Senate has passed zero. But they're getting closer. Last week in the House, the Speaker tried to move the single biggest of the 12 annual appropriations bills, the appropriations bill for the Department of Defense. On two separate occasions, he directed that the resolution containing the rule to govern debate on the DOD approps bill be moved for consideration. On two separate occasions, the rule failed because five Republicans voted against it. This is unheard of. Rules votes don't go down. They are not lost. Speaker John Boehner didn't lose a rules vote. Neither did Speaker Paul Ryan. It goes without saying that Speaker Nancy Pelosi never lost a vote on a rule. The last speaker to suffer the embarrassment of losing a vote on a rule was Denny Hastert way back in 2002. Now, Kevin McCarthy has lost three rules votes in his short tenure as speaker. Without a rule, a bill cannot go to the floor unless the speaker wants to suspend the rules. But that would require the bill to pass with a two-thirds vote. And given the fractious nature of the House these days, no one thinks the DOD approves bill is going to get a single Democrat vote, let alone enough to get to two-thirds of the whole House. So the speaker was stuck. Twice he pulled the DOD approach bill off the floor and retreated to think about how to move forward. On Friday afternoon, after sending his colleagues home for the weekend with instructions that they pay attention, just in case he should decide to call them back in over the weekend, he announced that he would remove a section of the DOD appropriations bill that contained $300 million in funding to help Ukraine defend itself against Russia's invasion. That particular provision had been a sore point for Georgia Republican Marjorie Taylor Greene, who declared that she was done funding Ukraine and would not vote for the bill if it still contained the Ukraine funding provision. So McCarthy simply announced he would remove it and vote on the Ukraine aid in a standalone vote. She was very pleased. Then Saturday rolled around and somebody realized that the state foreign operations appropriations bill, which was also scheduled to be voted on this week, also had provisions in it providing funding to Ukraine. Obviously, that was going to be problematic for Congresswoman Green. So Speaker McCarthy backtracked and said the Ukraine funding provision would remain in the DOD appropriations bill after all, and he would just plan on losing her vote on that bill. Well, that's it for moving the individual appropriations bills through the House. That's where we are. The Speaker plans to try to move four bills through the House on Tuesday and Wednesday and then see where they are. That still leaves the short-term funding problem. The government is going to run out of appropriations and the legal ability to spend funds at midnight Saturday. Normally, the House leadership, whether Democrat or Republican, would step in at this time and put a short-term continuing resolution on the floor, something that keeps the doors open, keeps the lights on, and gives them time to keep negotiating. But there are a number of hardliners in the House GOP conference who have made clear they simply will not vote for a continuing resolution of any sort, no matter what it says. McCarthy had tried to woo them by offering them a 30-day CR that kept defense and veterans funding stable at current levels, but cut all other non-defense discretionary spending by 8%, and then threw in most of the House passed H.R. 2, the Secure the Border Act, minus the E-Verify provisions, as a sweetener. But the hardliners still said no. So the House is stuck. 
It hasn't passed its appropriations bills on time, and it cannot pass a CR, at least not with just Republican votes. Meanwhile, the Senate is getting itchy. They've been sitting there on the other side of the Capitol, ready to move, but they've had to wait for the House. Well, no longer. Majority Leader Schumer has made plans to take the FAA reauthorization bill, which already passed the House, and gut it. He'll replace the text of the bill with an amendment that's actually a continuing resolution to keep the government funded on a short-term basis. He'll move that bill upon their return Tuesday and then be ready to pass it on Thursday, then send it to the House. It'll likely be a continuing resolution that keeps the government funded at current levels with additional money thrown in, probably $12 billion the White House has asked for to pay for emergency disaster relief, $4 billion more for border security, and $24 billion more for Ukraine. And that's likely to have overwhelming support in the Senate. There will be some GOP senators who vote against it, but I don't imagine it'll be more than 20. The vast majority of the House GOP, on the other hand, will not like that bill coming out of the Senate. They won't like that it keeps funding levels at their current levels, which were set by Nancy Pelosi's House in December of 2022 in a lame duck session after the Democrats had lost control of the House in the 2022 elections and they were on their way out the door. And many of the House Republicans really won't like the Ukraine funding attached. So that short-term funding bill will come out of the Senate late in the week, and then Speaker McCarthy will have a choice. He knows if he puts that bill on the floor, it'll likely pass with a combination of Democrat and Republican votes. His conservative colleagues will likely vote against it, and they may decide to make good on their threat and introduce a motion to vacate the chair, a parliamentary maneuver to throw him out of his job. Or he could keep that bill off the floor and let the government shut down for a day or two, or a week or two, or maybe even longer, so they can get a taste of a shutdown. Many of the hardliners who were talking tough about what's so bad about a temporary partial government shutdown have never been through one. Stay tuned. Now to the Biden crime family update. On Thursday, September 14, Hunter Biden was indicted by special counsel David Weiss on three felony counts related to his illegal purchase and possession of a firearm. Notably, despite the fact that IRS whistleblower Gary Shapley testified to the House Ways and Means Committee that in the spring of 2022, the Department of Justice's tax division had agreed with Weiss and his assistant U.S. attorney Leslie Wolf and IRS investigators that Biden should be charged with felony tax evasion charges for 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019, there were no tax charges included in the indictment. Said Abby Lowell, the younger Biden's lawyer, in response, quote, We believe these charges are barred by the agreement the prosecutors made with Mr. Biden. The recent rulings by several federal courts that this statute is unconstitutional and the fact that he did not violate that law. And we plan to demonstrate all of that in court, end quote. Lowell is referring first to the diversion agreement entered into as part of the sweetheart plea deal struck between Hunter Biden's lawyers and David Weiss's prosecution team. Though the misdemeanor tax charges plea needed the approval of a judge to go into force, the diversion agreement on the potential gun charges did not. And it's been Lowell's argument since the plea deal blew up that no matter what, he has a signed agreement with the prosecution team not to charge Hunter Biden with any gun crimes. 
We'll see how that argument does in court. Meanwhile, up on Capitol Hill, Republicans who have been pursuing the Biden crime family saga are shrugging off the indictment on the gun charges. That's the one crime you can charge Hunter with that has no relation to Joe Biden, said House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky. He's right. And the Oversight Committee, the Ways and Means Committee, and the Judiciary Committee are all continuing to pursue their joint investigation of the Biden family. To that end, Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan last week sent a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland seeking information on the Hunter Biden investigation. He also set an October 11 date for an interview with Special Counsel David Weiss. Jordan also indicated he wanted to interview other DOJ officials involved in the investigation, including U.S. Attorney for D.C. Matthew Graves and Assistant U.S. Attorney Leslie Graves, I'm sorry, Leslie Wolf, a deputy to Weiss. The DOJ confirmed receipt of Jordan's letter, but declined to comment to a reporter's request. Weiss's office also declined comment. Meanwhile, mainstream media fact-checkers are revising their narratives to take into account the recent revelations published by John Solomon at Just the News regarding Joe Biden's apparent decision to call an audible during his December 2015 trip to Kiev, when he seems to have gone off script and demanded the ouster of Ukrainian Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin as a condition of passing on a U.S. government-backed loan guarantee of a billion dollars. For years, the narrative had been firm. Biden had simply been carrying out U.S. policy when he told the Ukrainian president that he would only get the loan guarantee if he first fired the corrupt prosecutor general. But with the revelation of several contemporaneous pieces of evidence indicating that such a condition was not an official part of U.S. policy, those narratives have now changed. Last Friday, the Washington Post's fact-checker, Glenn Kessler, updated his reporting to indicate for the first time that Biden may have, quote, called an audible or changed the plan to link Victor Shokin's firing with the $1 billion loan guarantee while he was aboard Air Force Two on his way to Kiev, end quote. Stay tuned. Now to the Biden impeachment inquiry. The House Oversight and Accountability Committee is going to hold a hearing on Thursday morning to kick off the impeachment inquiry. Now to the Trump indictments. Update. Special Counsel Jack Smith has now dropped all pretense and is engaged in outright election interference. In court papers released on Friday, September 15, Smith actually filed a motion with Judge Tanya Chutkin asking for what Smith calls a narrowly tailored gag order against former President Trump that would prohibit Trump from making what Smith called disparaging and inflammatory or intimidating remarks against people who might be called as witnesses in his trial, including former Vice President Mike Pence who is competing with Trump for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. Yes, that's right. The special counsel has asked for a court order mandating that a candidate for his party's nomination for president not be allowed to say unkind things about a candidate against whom he is competing. If that's not election interference, I don't know what is. Trump's lawyers have until this afternoon to file their response with the court. It'll make for interesting reading and hopefully a lesson in the First Amendment to remind special counsel Jack Smith 
that we're still in America and the Constitution is still in effect. After that, Smith's prosecutorial team will have five days to respond to Trump's filing. And then after that, Judge Chutkin can rule at any time. Now let's talk about 2024. On Tuesday, September 12, liberal newspaper man David Ignatius, one of the most influential newspaper men in the business, published his regular column in the Washington Post, except that it wasn't regular at all. It was entitled, President Biden Should Not Run Again in 2024, and it went off like a bomb in the middle of the liberal establishment. Quote, I don't think Biden and Vice President Harris should run for re-election. It's painful to say that, Ignatius wrote, given my admiration for much of what they have accomplished. But if he and Harris campaign together in 2024, I think Biden risks undoing his greatest achievement, which was stopping Trump, end quote. The dam had broken. Blood was in the water. What was amazing was not that Ignatius wrote and that the Post published the piece. What was amazing was that even with blood in the water and even with permission from Ignatius, nobody went after Biden. Nobody paid attention to it, seriously. Within a matter of a day or two, it was as if that piece had never been written. But then came a new poll out just yesterday in one of the major organs of the Democrat Party, the Washington Post. Quote, Biden faces lagging public approvals, read the Washington Post's morning news. Biden faces criticism on economy, immigration, and age, it read. Short story, the poll surveyed both all adults and also a smaller sample of registered voters. I'm going to share information from the registered voters subsample. Biden's approval rating among registered voters is upside down, with 37% approving and 56% disapproving with strong disapproval more than twice as much as strong approval at 46 to 21 percent. On the economy, Biden's approved disapprove is 32 percent approve, 63 percent disapprove. On immigration, it's 23 percent approve, 63 percent disapprove. Asked to describe the state of the economy as excellent, good, not so good, or poor, 3 percent said excellent. 24% said good, 31% said not so good, and fully 42% said poor. Asked Ronald Reagan's question, would you say you yourself are better off financially than you were when Biden became president, not as well off, or in about the same shape financially, 16% said better off, 44% said not as well off, and 39% said about the same. Very interestingly, asked who they would blame if the federal government partially shut down next month, 39% said they would blame Biden and the Democrats, while 33% said they would blame Republicans in the Congress. And the ballot test question. In a potential 2024 matchup between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, 52% would vote for Trump, while just 42% would vote for Biden. Among Democrats, Biden wins 88%, with 10% supporting Trump. Among Republicans, Trump wins 91%, while just 5% vote for Biden. And among independents, this survey shows 52% supporting Trump and 39% supporting Biden, with 6% supporting neither, 2% saying they would not vote, and 2% saying they would support another candidate. Meanwhile, another major news poll, the NBC news poll, also came out on Sunday. 
and it showed the general election matchup between Trump and Biden tied at 46% apiece. Go figure. But trust me, even though the NBC News poll had the ballot test tied, the internals in that poll look just as bad for Biden as do the internals in the ABC News Washington Post poll. Whether Trump is up by 10 or tied with Biden a year out, neither is good for the Democrats. Because a national poll is always weighted toward the Democrats. And with the countervailing weight of the Electoral College, Democrats typically need to be leading by three or four points in a national survey to actually be tied with the GOP presidential candidate. So even if it's the NBC News poll that's more accurate, it's still not good for Biden and the Democrats. Now to the Jenny Beth show. Episode 31 of the Jenny Beth show dropped last Wednesday. It features Jenny Beth's interview with Sally Grubbs chairman of the Cobb County, Georgia GOP. Cobb County is the third largest county in the state and holds the northwest suburbs of Atlanta. For many decades, it delivered huge GOP majorities, but it's been trending blue since 2016. It's a very interesting discussion of politics at the grassroots level, and I highly recommend it. And I can even tease the next episode of The Jenny Beth Show on Wednesday morning, two days from now, her interview with Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA will drop. And that's our Washington Report for this week.